testing one, two, you forgot to tie your shoe. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. In case this is your first time listening to the show, we're in the middle of our four-part educational series on exertional heat stroke and preventing sudden death in sports. This series is different from most of our previous episodes where we interview athletes from all walks of life and hear their own personal tales of perseverance. So go back and check some of the other stories out that we feature on the show, and I guarantee you that you'll be left feeling inspired. Episode 40 is part 3 of 4 of this series, so if you missed part 1 and 2, I recommend that you go back and listen to episode 38 and 39. In episode 38, we not only learned about the history of the Corey Stringer Institute from KSI's CEO, Dr. Douglas Casa, but we also learned the proper way to diagnose and treat the illness. In addition, we heard Gavin Class's amazing comeback story after he flatlined in the hospital and received a liver transplant due to complications from his heat stroke. In episode 39, We heard from KSI's Chief Operating Officer, Dr. Rebecca Stearns. Dr. Stearns taught us about the various educational resources that KSI offers on multiple sports, health, and safety topics. She also shared her own tale of perseverance when she got back to running marathons after suffering from a DVT and pulmonary embolism. We also learned about the importance of hydration in preventing exertional heat stroke in that episode. We finished episode 39 hearing from Hunter Knighton, who currently plays offensive line for the Miami Hurricanes, but he is also the survivor of exertional heat stroke. He actually spent 12 days in a coma, lost 55 pounds, and underwent surgery to repair paralyzed vocal cords. It took him close to a year and a half to get back on the field. Make sure you listen to episode 39 to hear about Hunter's tremendous comeback that led to him winning the Capital One Orange Bowl Courage Award after the 2015 season. If you haven't done so yet, please go over to iTunes and Stitcher, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review. This helps us spread our message further and further each week. You can also stay up to date on all upcoming episodes by following us on Instagram at Heads and Tails. Heads is in multiple heads, the letter N and then Tails spelled T-A-L-E-S. Same thing on Twitter at a P-O-D on the end of the handle, and also like us on Facebook. Lastly, the Heads and Tails podcast is brought to you by you. So head over to the shop at headsandtails.org backslash shop and grab yourself some gear. All profits go towards travel and equipment costs that I incur in trying to bring you guys the best tales and best information each and every week. In episode 40, we hear from Dr. Will Adams, Vice President of Sports Safety, and Yuri Hosokawa, who is both the Director of Communication and the Director of Education at the Corey Stringer Institute. Yuri and Dr. Adams dive deep into the historical statistics and trends in heat acclimatization policy and also some of the obstacles that they come across regionally throughout the United States when it comes to policy adoption. Yuri also tells the tale of a young athlete named Logan Johnson who survived heat stroke and worked with the KSI staff to get back to playing basketball. The trend of highly motivated athletes pushing themselves to the limits comes up again in this story. But enough jibber-jabber already. Let's get on with the show. This is Kevin Som. You're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. We share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. It's been a long day. Imagine. <laughs> okay, shows like beers up here or something. Yeah. <laughs> Make things much more smooth. That's Sometimes true. on some podcasts they do. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, not this one. Okay, so today I'm at the Corey Stringer Institute. I'm here with Yuri and, and Will. They're both athletic trainers here. And can you guys start off by telling me about kind of what your role is at the Corey Stringer Institute? Yuri, you want to start off? Sure. Um, my name is Yuri Hasakawa. Um, I'm an athletic trainer by training, but I'm also the director of communication and education at the Curry Stringer Institute. And you do a great job of coordinating all communication type uh, activities here. I, I can attest to that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, and Will, what about you? Um, like Gary, I'm also an athletic trainer. Um, with KSI, I'm the vice president of sports safety, so I kind of oversee our um, arm of KSI that's directly related to helping both youth sports as well as high school sports adopt uh, evidence-based best practice recommendations for sports safety to help keep uh, student-athletes safe. Awesome. Interesting stuff. Uh, You guys want to, I'm assuming that you guys had some sort of an athletic background uh, growing up, so can you talk about um, what sports you played and what kind of led you to have an interest in athletic training? Yuri, you want to start off? Sure. Um, I've been, I think, Ever since, say, 10-month-old, I started swimming, so it was, my parents were very athletic, and one of my, um, well, my father, he did triathlon, so I guess he wanted me to get started on swimming as early as possible, so I started swimming, and then 
when I was 12, I moved to States. I'm originally from Japan, and I moved to States, and I continued to swim, but I found that in States, people, girls especially, they played soccer, and that wasn't popular in Japan at that time. Okay. So Just for women playing soccer or soccer in general? Oh, women playing soccer. Okay. Now it's very popular, but back in, you know, early 2000s, it wasn't as popular. So that kind of opened up my mind in terms of, you know, oh, there is an organized sport where girls can play soccer here too. So that's kind of the reason why I started playing soccer from middle school up until high school. And there was a time when I was a, I was exposed to athletic training and sports medicine uh, when I was going to a middle school in the United States. After that, I moved back to Japan to complete my high school and also my bachelor's degree, which was actually in athletic training. And the start of that was really being exposed to organized sport activity uh, for various levels of you know, competition and having a support system from sports science and medicine, even for the youth athlete. So that kind of let me and open up my mind into, you know, there is a profession within this realm of sports, you know, safety and, you know, performance. And that was kind of the intro for me to enter this profession. Awesome. Uh, Will, well, what sports did you play growing up? So growing up, um, I probably played baseball most of my life starting when I was about five years old. Um, so that's probably my number one sport. Uh, in high school, I ran track for a couple of years, and then uh, I got into swimming and swam competitively for a couple of years as well in high school. Um, and then transitioned just being a normal endurance uh, athlete, if you will, now with just running and cycling. Um, what sparked my interest in athletic training, um, going in, into undergrad, I uh, had dreams of going to med school, becoming a physician. Um, so I wanted to take the kind of the engineering route of things to go through uh, an engineering program and then get into med school. Uh, after three semesters, I realized that engineering wasn't for me, and I liked the hands-on aspect of things a lot more. Um, and uh, I wanted to try to find something that I could do my bachelor's degree in that I could, you know, do stuff in, in a clinical standpoint. Right. Um, I was looking into physical therapy school for a little while, um, but for my bachelor's, I was like, okay, well, what can I do? So I was thinking exercise science or athletic training. Um, at the time, I applied into both programs. I was fortunate enough to get into the athletic training program um, at the University of Wisconsin. and um, The Badgers. The Badgers, and that's, where, uh, that's why I'm uh, here today. I fell in love with the profession, and I wanted to continue to uh, uh, be in the field of athletic training and promote the profession. Awesome. Uh, did you guys suffer any injuries uh, throughout your athletic careers? Fortunately, nothing serious for me. Injury-free? Yeah, my nothing Yeah, nothing major. I mean, normal sprains, strains, right. contusions. Do you have any advice for athletes to stay injury-free, or is it luck? I would say, I mean, I wasn't – I mean, I played in a competitive swim team, but besides that, um, I try to stay in touch with any, you know, other type of sports too so although I was in swim team I ran I did soccer you know I did volleyball I did cross country so well-rounded so uh, maybe another another vote helped. for multi-sport athletes <laughs> gotcha I'm probably the same way I didn't really have anything major that had happened injury-wise just minor things here and there but you know I think that being a multi-sport athlete and just uh you know focusing on training and becoming a you know better athlete I think it kind of helped um, from that standpoint. Cool. Um, so both of your sports careers ended at some point. So what was your transition to life after sports like? Was it difficult? Because that's something that I've struggled with and a lot of times a big reason why I even started the podcast was for this exact transition. Um, so Yuri, did you experience any kind of uh, troubles in your transition? I actually... Well, I find, you know, the role of athletic trainer being, you know, side by side with the athlete and helping them through the process. I actually enjoy that perspective in terms of, you know, being the one who supports the athlete. So it wasn't too much of a big, you know, negative transition for me, so to say. But right. really, I, f I actually found myself more fitting to be in that role to support, you know, athletes from that perspective. So okay. in my mind... Um, you know, I, I think the transition was actually good for me and I still stay active and stuff like that too. But for me personally, I think I am actually doing a better job as an athletic trainer than being an athlete myself. So. 
Yeah, my transition was pretty similar where um, I knew right out of high school I, I wasn't going to continue my athletic career any further, um, especially with the college choice that I chose. Um, I had the opportunity to to play baseball at a, at a Division three school, and I decided that my education was more important. And You, you know, want to go to football games? I want to go to football games. <laughs> um, um, but no, I um, so I, I realized, you know, where I was going to school, I, I knew there were no opportunities, um, but to be active. So that's why I continued to, you know, lift weights and run and, and uh, cycle. And, you know, I got into more of the long distance running uh, marathons, half marathons. So um, still kept active and it was good to be uh, in athletic training because, you know, I love sports. Um, so being able to, you know, work with various teams I was able to work with, I was still around the, the setting of sport. Did you, were you a student athletic trainer at Wisconsin? Yeah. So I, um, um, the program there was five semesters long. So each semester you're with a different um, team. So oh, that's cool. Yeah, I worked with uh, um, football for two of my two of my rotations, um, my first and my last. And I was with women's ice hockey, men's soccer. Then I was at high school for their winter into spring. So I got to see winter sports and then the spring sports. What was like the wildest thing you saw there? The coolest thing you saw during your clinical rotations there? Oh man, the coolest thing I saw. Uh, a few weird things. So I, I didn't travel to this game. One of our one of our football players um, went up for a catch, made the catch, came down in kind of like a hurdler position, um, and it was really unique. Like a split. Yeah, kind, kind of, of like a frontward split. Yeah. So his one leg was out straight. Yeah, um, I can picture it. Yeah, <laughs> and so he landed like on his butt, um, just because the way the ball was thrown and the D back behind him wanted to make sure he was down. He pushed so him, he down. Pushed him down. So he ruptured two of his three hamstring muscles completely. Um, so he had to have surgery. And so I, I wasn't there for the game, but got to see the entire kind of rehab process from after surgery um, up until when he was um, fully returning to play, um, which was unique. Um, I think kind of the weirdest thing I saw, two, two of the weirdest things I saw was one of our men's soccer um, players got stepped on or something, and he didn't, you know, take too much of a notice to clean between his toes as your mom would say and uh so between his fourth and fifth toe it started to turn kind of green and gangrenous like trench foot like so, yeah uh, soldiers used to have back in world war one not taking care of their feet and uh so that was weird and then um similar story another toe story when i was with women's hockey after one of the wins the girls were celebrating in the locker room because it was the one girl's birthday and the girl was, you know, they're in the process of getting changed out of their, their um, skates and everything. And um, the one girl didn't have her skates on anymore, and the other girl next to her still had them. And they're just I could just picture what's going to happen around, next. And oh, she boy. stepped, and um, it went through, um, went through um, what, the tendon in the, in the, in the pinky toe. Oh. Um, luckily, our orthopedic surgeon was there. So I got to see that. Um, that he sewed suturing. back on? So he, he, he sewed the, sutured the uh, tendon back together, and he sutured the, um, the skin up. So it was interesting it was unique it wasn't like sport related it was like i'm feeling lightheaded you were <laughs> yeah. <about> that. <laughs> yuri what was the coolest thing that you've seen in your uh your clinical practices um i would say so from coolest like, depending on how you define it yeah, i guess that's right. weird abnormal. coolest in terms of what athletic trainers you find as coolest right yeah um i would say um so from KSI, we travel a lot to um, road races across mm. the states, um, especially for the races that have high risk for exertional heat strokes. So one of the um, the first encounter of my first exertional heat stroke patient I've ever treated, um, this was a, in a summer road race, and I was, you know, told to attend this one patient. And, you know, that was he was my first patient ever of exertional heat stroke. He was a runner, and, you know, I would start talking to this guy, you know, trying to make sure he's, a, you know, coherent, he's oriented, and, you know, trying to get more information from where that patient came from, how he's feeling. Well, throughout the entire time, this patient would not make an eye contact with me. And I'm thinking, this might be a really, really bad okay. case. <laughs> so I continued to, t to take his history, trying to, you know, make sure that he's awake. Well, I found out maybe 10, 15 minutes later on his bib where the runner's number is on, it said he was a blind runner. Oh. So no wonder he wasn't, you know, able to look at me in yeah, the yeah, eye. Yeah. But that really triggered me to change my, you know, way of speaking to him because now, you know, he's in the middle of the medical tent being dunked in the ice water 
because that's the gold standard for you know exertional heat stroke treatment but he has no idea what's going on yeah right so then you know i would change up my way of speaking to him really making sure that you know he knows where he is and you know assuring that he's safe but that being my first patient for you know exertional heat stroke setting was just crazy and you know that kind of gave me a reminder to go back to the you know very first step really make a clear observation what's going on really get to know the patient first before you do anything because right. so where did you see that it said that he was a blind runner on the back of his bib or on the front on the front of the bib but front. it was so subtle that i just didn't even right. bother to look at it because isn't there like a emergency contact info you're supposed to like write on there mm-hmm. they, yeah they're supposed to be but they're supposed to most people they don't fill it out yeah. unfortunately <laughs> oh well <laughs> maybe if you listen to this you will um all right so you're, you have an interesting background in that you got to experience sports in a different country. So how does sports in terms of health and safety mm-hmm. in terms of like youth athletics, high school, whatever, I'm not really quite sure how it works over there. How does it differ than uh, the United States? Better, worse, same? Sure. So um, so I'm originally from Japan, so I can speak to, you know, how the culture is like in Japanese, you know, sports community. So a lot of youth, you know, participate in sport, just like, you know, kids in the U.S. You know, most um, sport teams are organized by school clubs or community teams. And, you know, they can be very competitive. But unfortunately, the concept of sports safety or even having, you know, appropriate personnel on site to cover, you know, football games or soccer games or rugby games, you know, that whole concept is not almost non-existent in a youth level. Now, if it's in a professional level, you know, the club or the team might have the budget or to have the resource to have, you know, healthcare professional on site. But um, unfortunately, that's kind of seen as a luxury, you know, resource. So for Joe Schmo, you know, high school kid who's participating, you know, Friday night football, that, you know, having them being exposed to athletic trainer is almost non-existent. And it's an emerging field. A lot of people are now starting to be aware that that's something that we need to work on. Um, and the funny thing is some, some of the Japanese um, organizations, they actually look up to the model that we have in the U.S. because in the U.S. it's very comprehensive in terms of providing the care and opportunity and resource for all levels of sport. So it's definitely something that we need to work on. Um, but, yeah, very different from what we see here in states. Awesome. Um so when did you guys start to get involved with the Corey Stringer Institute? Like, how did you guys ultimately end up here? Um, Will, you want to start off? Yeah, so I uh, I graduated from undergrad in um, December of 2009. Um, I was looking for a grad school um, to get some clinical experience, get my master's degree. Um, I came to UConn for my master's. Um, I came in the fall of 2010. Um, so a master's in athletic training? Um, exercise science here. Uh, okay. Yeah, there are science. some athletic training programs that are master's programs, but here was exercise science. Um, I had the opportunity to work at high school for two years, which was a great experience. Um, KSI started in April 2010, so I came in the fall in August. Um, and that was a long time after Corey Stringer's mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. injury. Or yeah. Unfortunately, the, um, the the settlement that um, the NFL had made with his widow, Kelsey, that she utilized all that money to start KSI. And, you know, it just took that many years right, for right, all right. the legal cases to mm-hmm. go through. So, yeah, I came in in fall of 2010. Um, it was at the high school and, you know, I was interested in, in the work that we were doing at KSI and, um, I spent the first two years, um, while I was at the high school volunteering and helping out, um, just with the way funding worked for grad students and, and whatnot. Um, so I volunteered a lot of my time to help out with some of the initiatives we were working on early on and in, uh, you know, getting established as an organization and everything. Um, and then after, after that, I stayed on for my PhD and then became more actively involved, um, with KSI and, um, transition into that uh the role where i have now we're overseeing some of the policy stuff that we're doing now um so that's kind of my you know um phasing into ksi and you know where i am now awesome what about you yuri so my story begins from me being in japan okay so um in japan i majored in athletic training but athletic training in japan is not a licensed professional healthcare professional so I um, sought out um, some opportunities to actually study athletic training in the U.S. as well so that I could be licensed and practice and, you know, see athlete as patient and use my expertise to help those athletes to get back to play. So 
I first moved to Arkansas. He went to University of Arkansas. The Razorbacks. Yes, the Razorbacks. Um, And they offer entry master's program for athletic training. So I did my master's there. And after finishing the master's degree, um, I sat on the board examination. I passed a test. And um, during that process, when I was learning the medical aspect of athletic training, um, I found that, you know, some of the concepts that I was never exposed to in Japan, for example, athletic trainers, you know, prevent sudden death in sports. Because we weren't healthcare professional, that aspect wasn't touched, you know, as much. So me now knowing that, you know, we could really save someone's lives, um, that really motivated me to study more about that. So I wouldn't be here if it weren't for an athletic trainer, so... <laughs> So that that's the really that was an eye opener for me to really pursue you know athletic training and see this profession as someone that could save athletes' lives. And when I was searching, you know, preventing sudden death in sport, the first thing that came up was University of Connecticut and the Corey Stringer Institute. So it was a no brainer for place me you to had come to be. Here. Cool. Yep. And you're you're working on your PhD right now. Yes. Awesome. Um, Okay, so I know you guys had a, a story that you wanted to share um, with one of the athletes that you, you guys both work with, right? Um, his name is Logan Johnson, and uh, he's the youngest athlete that we've heard about today. Um, so can you kind of take us through um, Logan's story and how you guys worked with him and worked him ultimately back to playing basketball again? I'll let Yuri go through that sure. story. Sure, so um, Logan, he, he's a, he was 12 years old when the – um, when it happened, he um, suffered from injurious heat stroke, and it was back in the year of 2010, summer of 2010 in Arkansas. So it, this incident actually happened before I moved to states, but I knew of this story because that's all people talked about in Arkansas in terms of you know trying to make the environment safe for youth sports. It was his story. But mm-hmm, his oh, okay. story. Yep. So. Summer of 2010 in Arkansas was actually very oppressive, very bad summer, and they actually had multiple kids who were, you know, going through near-fatal um, experience or unfortunately some, you know, led to fatality um, from playing sport in the summertime. And for Logan's story, um, it was very unique because he collapsed to exertional heat stroke on school campus on the first day of basketball tryouts. Um, I think it was actually the second day of school, but it was the first day for them to start practicing. Isn't that like early for basketball? I was like, when I read that, I'm like, that makes, don't they usually start like after Thanksgiving or something? Yeah. Mm. In Arkansas, in that region, I I guess they started their season early. We practice now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We're not waiting to start. So, um, and the unfortunate part about his story is really, you know, he suffered from heat stroke, but there was no one, you know, who could recognize that, you know, he was actually suffering from durational heat stroke. And even when he was seeking out for help, you know, he, we, we heard from Logan that when he was going through the practice, he knew that it, there was something wrong with his, you know, health and, you know, he wasn't feeling well at all. But there's no athletic trainer, right? No. This is, this is middle school, mm-hmm. right? I don't know of any middle schools that have athletic trainers. I actually worked in a middle school, private sc- private school, but private uh, boarding school for a year as an athletic trainer. Okay. So there are some schools, but mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. It's very. If you're few. paying money for them, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> there's some pri- um, public schools as well. They they have access to an athletic trainer. It just depends on the mm-hmm. geographic location yeah. and the resources and the size of the district. Right. All right. Yeah, but he was, you know. <coughs> crying for help and you know he was trying to let the coaches know that you know he can't not go on anymore he wasn't feeling well he felt dizzy all the signs and symptoms that you could think of from the exertional heat stroke standpoint and even without the knowledge of exertional heat stroke you know this kid was obviously struggling and crying out for help to you know have someone you know grant him the time to recover or just sit down to take a break but you know given the athletic competitive athletic um, environment and you know this day being the first day we try being pushed out, uh, right and I'm sure you know Logan wanted to do well so he wanted to press the coach and you know he was highly motivated that day to complete whatever it needed to take you know to be on the team as well so all these factors combined given you know the high temperature and environmental condition you know not fit enough to you know really complete high intensity wasn't acclimated out, right right mm-hmm. acclimated okay. both from the environmental standpoint and also the fitness standpoint okay um, and I'm again. I'm pretty sure he was very highly motivated. So he, you know, he would push beyond 
you know, his capacity. Right. And what I also found interesting about Logan's story was that he eventually had, was diagnosed with rhabdo, Mm -hmm. right? Which is something that none of the other stories that I've heard of today um, experienced. So what's the difference between rhabdo and exertional heat stroke? Because obviously they're both life-threatening illnesses um, in some degree, I think. Um, So can you kind of explain to the audience what the difference is between the two and did he have both? Did he have exertional heat stroke and he had rhabdo? Why? So rhabdo, um, in a lay definition, is is rapid muscle breakdown. So the muscles are starting to break down within the body. Um, this typically happens with very high intensity, prolonged intens- uh, prolonged exercise. In the CrossFit world, it's a it's a buzzword for sure. Yeah. So the very high intensity exercise. Um, you know, very minimal breaks between, uh, especially when the intensity is above the threshold in which that person can actually perform it for a long period of time. So, um, you know, it can happen without um, exercising the heat. You know, with the University of Iowa football players a few years ago, there was 13 that got rabbed on the first day back from, from spring, um, from winter break. Um, they were doing repeat squats for 100 yards, um, and 13 of them went to the hospital rhabdo. So it doesn't have to happen in the heat. It can happen anywhere, but it's basically – Is that on the strength coach, you think? Um, in that case, I mean, I personally would, would think so, but um, – I would too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I was the head coach, I'd be like, are you kidding me, dude? I mean, but, you're fired. Yeah, so, I mean, rhabdo can happen without um, exercising the heat. So in, in Logan's case, I mean, it could have been um, just the what they are doing um, during the tryouts, if they're doing, you know, sprints, especially if he was – um, not fit to to do that type of exercise for that uh, length of time, um, that could have um, caused that onset of rhabdo to happen. Um, so I mean, there are two separate um, two separate etiologies, but you know, in some instances, um, they you know um, rhabdo might happen in someone with um, heat stroke. Okay, but it's not like a definite. It's just mm-hmm. like how common is that? Um. I mean, the part of, you know, the definition of exertional heat stroke is the prolonged hyperthermia above, you know, 105 degrees Fahrenheit. But with that, the protein in your cells, you know, your muscle, they denature. And that, you know, means that there is a muscle breakdown. Which is what rhabdo is, essentially. So they are highly connected. But again, they're a very two different ideology. So it doesn't need to always happen. But for someone with exertional heat stroke, you know, if that severity was very high, then they could present, you know, with rhabdomyolysis. So is because um, Logan had rhabdo and he had exertional heat stroke, was his um, approach to recovery different than if he only had one or the other? Or would you treat him the same? Um, obviously, with the immediate treatment for heat stroke, you'd want to cool him down as quickly as possible. So that's Did they do a good thing. job of that? Um so for this case, because there wasn't the, you know, healthcare professional on site to immediately, you know, recognize the situation and treat the treat Logan, um, what had actually happened was he actually went out of the gym and went to the school cafeteria because his grandmother, I think, was working at the cafeteria. So Logan, you know, went to the cafeteria asking his grandma to re- really help him because he wasn't feeling well. Well, when he got to the cafeteria, all the other workers at the cafeteria noticed that there was something wrong with him and noticed that he was very hyperthermic. So they applied ice and wet towels to, you know, with an attempt to cool him down. And so in his situation, I think that actually, you know, prevented him from going even further down, you know, the bad mm-hmm. spectrum of having exertional heat strokes and, you know, potential fatality. So what they did on site, you know, try, attempting to cool him down, even though it wasn't a cold water immersion, you know, using ice the baths best and the wet towel, um, that definitely helped them, you know, recover from the um, longer, for, for the global view. But um, in terms of, in terms of, you know, would we treat, you know, a patient with rhabdomyolysis and exertional heat stroke different in, from, in terms of return to play? Um before we do any type of specific planning for return and play, we would first make sure that all the blood panels are normal, which means that the person needs to first recover from rhabdo. Okay. So 
from the global sequence, that'll happen first. And then after we see that the person's having a stable blood variables, then we can gradually progress into the person going back to return and play progression. All right. Um, and Logan went back and forth to the hospital a couple of times, like during this period. So what was he presenting that people weren't quite getting that he was suffering from rhabdo and exertional heat stroke? So unfortunately, I think what really happened was the lack of recognition by the healthcare professional who first attended Logan. Um, and this is, the, this is something that KSI is working really hard on too. But um, athletic trainers are, you know, we're used to seeing people under exertion. We're used to seeing athletes and we're used to seeing, you know, conditions such as exertional rhabdomyolysis or exertional heat stroke. But it may be that for people who's with, you know, other from other healthcare professionals, such as, you know, paramedics or, you know, EMTs, you know, they don't always encounter exertional patients that they might miss or they might not recognize, you know, the condition as severe as, you know, it really is. So for Logan's case, I know that he was sent to ER first, but was discharged and had to go back to ER again the next day because he wasn't feeling well. And he had the back and forth between a visit to the emergency room and then back to the house again. Um, I think that really happened not because of Logan not saying that he wasn't feeling well, but rather the medical professional not recognizing that he was actually suffering from exertional heat stroke. Right. And you know, the fact that it's very different from classic heat stroke. Right. Interesting. There's a lot that goes into it and it can easily be kind of missed, I guess, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. I know I was talking to uh, Dr. Casa about the difference between, what was he saying? There's an exertional heat stroke and then there's like, not heat, it's a heat exhaustion or mm -hmm. something. And like that there's a fine line between the two. Mm -hmm. So it's with this education that you guys provide, it'll make it more likely that it gets the right diagnosis. Um, okay, so who do you think is often to blame for heat stroke? Like in this case, a lot of, like the coaches were pushing them, and in sports in general, it's not just any coach. Like you never, I never want to blame a, a specific coach. It's more of like a cultural aspect of the warrior mentality, pushing through injuries, pushing yourself to the limits. But like, where does that line end? Do you think that it's the coach's responsibility, athletes, or is it in this case the lack of athletic trainers? I think in general, um, it might not be who is to blame, but what is to blame for the heat stroke. Obviously, there are influences from the coach. You know, if they're putting pressure, and even if you look outside of athletics, like within, in the military, in basic training, the drill sergeant, like you're going to do whatever he says, and he doesn't have any regard to it. Right. It's know, like I, an authoritative yeah. So, yeah, I mean, presence. From that perspective, you know, the coach might be pushing these athletes beyond their, their capabilities. Um, the athletes, those those athletes with the warrior mentality, that they'll, they'll push through anything because they want to – one, you know, impress their teammates or coaches or, you know, get to that uh, extra step. That's, that's part know? of the problem because that's how you succeed in athletics is like that ability to kind of <clears throat> push, you know, when you feel like you don't have any left is exactly what leads you to have exertional heat stroke. So it's like mm -hmm. it's a, a tough dilemma. Yeah. So, I mean, there, I think those are, just, uh, you know, some entities. Um, but, you know, there's also the other factors, the, you know, the conditions they're in, you know, if they're wearing equipment, if they're sick, if they're dehydrated, you know, there's other internal factors that might influence why someone has heat stroke. I think um, the reason why oftentimes there's a catastrophic event from a heat stroke is the lack of appropriate medical care or a lack of appropriate treatment, um, which I think in, in a lot of cases, that's why you have people um, dying from heat stroke where, um, in cases where they're treated or they're, it's recognized immediately, treated, you know, immediately. We, you know, Outcome is very good. 100% survival from what we know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great transition into, I know, I know, Will, you work a lot in the policy aspect mm -hmm. of what you guys do here at, at KSI. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what policies should be put in place um, in terms of maybe high school or really, I guess it would be anywhere um, in order to prevent something like this from happening? Yeah, if you look at just sudden death in general in sport and physical activity, the top four causes of death are cardiac arrest, um, head injury, especially in those contact collision sports, heat illness, and um, sickle cell-related death. So those four causes are roughly about 85 to 90% of all deaths that happen in sport. So if we can find ways to minimize that, those risks or 
appropriately treat those events from happening if they were to happen because we can't 100% prevent all of that, um, that's where we should focus on. So at KSI, we focus on looking at um, policies that address those issues, such as um, heat acclimatization, uh, modifying um, practices or competition based on environmental conditions, um, looking at um, um, having a defibrillator on site um, within, you know, one minute of, of you know, a, a sport venue. Um, policies like that are, are very instrumental. Uh, concussion policies, we look at an emergency action plan. So an emergency action plan is pretty simple. It's a step-by-step it's a -step plan of, of what to do in the event of an emergency during sport. Um, you know, it's very site-specific, so it's going to provide the person with, you know, you're at this site, this is the address, this is who to call, these are the people that are be available to assist if there's an emergency, stuff like that. Right, and you have to practice these emergency action mm -hmm. plans too, or else it's like, why bother, I guess, yeah. right? And I think some of these policies, that we, we found them to be very successful, and I'll give one example with heat climatization. Um, I don't know if Dr. Pass or someone mentioned this. We have talked about it in previous years. You don't have to go into specifics about yeah. what that is, but... If but, you want to talk about the outcome. Yeah, so um, in 2003, the NCAA mandated a for-all August preseason practices for football. Um, prior to 2003, there was about one, maybe two deaths per year of college football athletes dying from heat stroke, or residual heat stroke. Um, after, you know, a consecutive series of years of athletes dying, the NCAA was like, okay, how can we prevent this? So they uh, um, developed heat acclimatization guidelines to help phase in the activity for football players to help keep them safe. Um, and since 2003, there's only been two deaths during August preseason practices. Doug Schmid and Sam Collins both died within the first two weeks of preseason practices from a heat stroke since 2003. So you know, if you extrapolate that out, um, it's probably saved about 20 lives um, from college football alone wow. during August. So that's been great. Um, at the high school level, it's interesting because with policy changes, it's state by state. There's no overall governing body that mandates policies at the high school level. So each state has their own athletics association right. or activities association, um, and they're the ones that mandate the policies. Um, starting in 2011, that's the first state to adopt the um, heat acclimatization guidelines, and these guidelines um, were um, published in the General Athletic Training in 2009, specific to high school um, athletics, and basically it was word for word from the 2003 NCAA guidelines. Um, and it just addressed the phasing in of activity over the course of 10 to 14 days. So New Jersey was great. They're proactive. They adopted these guidelines in 2011. Since 2011, there's been 16 states in our country that have adopted these or mandated these for August preseason practices for football at high school level. So if we look at before heat climatization, before New Jersey passed in 2011, and going back to 1980, there was 44 heat-circulated deaths within high school football players. Since then, um, we have 16 states that have adopted them for the past five years. Um, a lot of the southeast states, where you have the highest yeah, risk, the highest Florida, state. Georgia, North Carolina, et cetera. Um, those states have the highest risk. Um, but once those states adopted guidelines or mandated these guidelines be followed, there's been zero deaths from heat stroke in high school football athletes. And Georgia, for example, um, had the highest rate of heat stroke deaths of high school football players in the country before they adopted them, and since then they haven't had a death. I think the the um, telling um, reason why this is successful, in 2014, a football player died in Florida, first day of high school football practice from heat stroke. Well, in that case, um, the coaches decided not to follow the state-mandated guidelines, and a kid died of heat stroke. So well, he didn't follow it? No. Yeah, they decided not to follow the guidelines that were mandated by the— uh, Wait, who said not to follow it? The coaches at the high school decided not to follow the guidelines. Oh, okay. And the kid so they already had the guideline, you know, implemented in statewide, you know, initiative. But this one particular case, when we were, you know, investigating, why did this oh, happen? Oh, that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, yeah, they, uh, Florida did it in 2012. They adopted the guidelines, and 2014, first day of practice, kid um, collapses, dies of heat stroke. So, you know, you have 16 states, and once they uh, passed or follow, started following guidelines, zero deaths. Um, in the one instance where the school did not follow the state mandated guidelines, there was a death. Wow. Um, so it kind of shows how successful that one policy is. And there's other examples. So you said only 16 states have mm -hmm. adopted it. Is why, what, what's, why, what about the other states? What's the, the obstacle in trying to get them to adopt these policies? Um, there's a few. Um, there's been some states that have actually made really good progress in getting um, these policies implemented. So um, if you look at that 2009 document, there's 
seven recommendations to follow as far as how many practices per day, how long these practices are, when equipment should be worn, et cetera. Um, so there's been some states that have been making good progress where, you know, two years ago, they met zero of those seven recommendations. Right. Now they meet four, maybe five. Right. Um, so it's kind of baby steps. They're making progress, but they don't meet all of those minimum best practice recommendations. Um, is think, it money? Like, is that? No. And, and the good thing is, is heat economization, you're just changing the, the construct of practice. So you're, right. you're saying when practice is, how long practice is, that costs Breaks, no money. Yeah. It costs no money at all to do that. Um, I think some of the other reason why um, in a lot of the northern states from our communications, um, you know, oh, it doesn't get hot in Oregon. It doesn't get hot in Maine. Um, Does it have to be hot to get heat stroke? No. Um, Not always. Nope. One year working medical in Boston Marathon, high temperature for the day was 53 degrees, and we had like three heat strokes that day. What? So, I mean, it doesn't have to be hot, and I think the, the I think it's just a lack of education um, of the administrators that are making these policies, because if this was in the discussion in one of the other episodes, or yeah, one of the other episodes, mm-hmm. is that the people making the decisions don't have this like clinical background, yeah. so they don't get it, mm-hmm. right? And I think the I think one of the the big reasons you know why you know Maine's like I don't want to pass heat colonization. It doesn't get hot. But here. why not? But it's all, and it goes back to, Yuri has a lot of expertise on this with, like, kind of just environmental conditions. You know, it's all regional-based. You know, there's right. average temperatures in Maine, for example. So, you know, 85-degree day for a football player in Maine, that might be the hottest day of the year that they've experienced all year. Exactly, right. Where 85 degrees in Louisiana, that's a piece Nothing, of cake. Yeah. So I, I think people don't realize that there are regional differences, and once those av- once the temperatures get above average normal temperature, you know, you're at a much greater risk because those athletes or those people outside is outside exercising, they're not used to that elevated temperature from what exactly, they're normally yeah. exposed to. So I think that's probably the biggest um, reason is just a misunderstanding or uh, a lack of education around that. Right. Yuri, do you any- have anything to add about that? Yeah, I mean, Will made a great point about the regional aspect of things. So, you know, we have the environmental guidelines, you know, recommendations to say that if your region, you know, experienced a certain temperature, then you should modify accordingly whether it's the increasing number of rest breaks or having more hydration breaks. And when we consult with many states, you know, whether it's from the southern southern states or a northern state, you know, people in the southern states may say, well, you can't have this guideline for us because if that's the case, we're going to have to cancel our practice every single day. Or the ones from the northern states, they would say, like Will said, you know, well, our temperature will never get that high, so right. this is irrelevant. So then the argument that we have is, you know, it's really – up to that regional norm so if the environmental condition is exceeds above and beyond what's been experienced by that region then you know those people should recognize that as one of the risks we're not saying that environmental condition alone could you know influence if the whether or not the person may have exertional heat stroke but it's certainly one of the biggest uh, risk factors that we've seen that's awesome that's something that hasn't come up at all today but makes a ton of sense it's Really cool. Um, so we're about to wrap this episode up. So I'm going to just ask you guys both a few questions to, to close it out. Um, so, Will, you want to start off? What, what was your favorite part about being an athletic trainer? I think it's just dealing or not dealing with, but I think it's just being around the athletes. Um, you know, depending on the sport and the athlete, they're all different and they're all unique in their own ways. So I think just being around that environment and getting to interact with them, um, especially, you know, when – when they're in like a time of need, when they get injured, you know, they're looking for someone to help take care of them. Right. And I think it's just a gratifying experience for me personally as a clinician to, you know, be able to work with an athlete and help them from a point of injury to get back to normal and full function. Um, you can see, um, you know, in working with them, you know, the, the desire to get back and they, they, you know, they see the progress over time, especially if it's a long-term injury and you can explain things and why things are going the way they are. And once they kind of understand you know, what's going in, you know, going through their body and, and how their body's responding to an injury. Um, they have such a greater appreciation for what athletic trainers do and what they're able to, you know, help them as an athlete to um, get back on the field. So I, I think it's a, a great experience to be able to see that and to work with athletes. And, you know, they're just fun. Most oh. of them, or most of them are fun. There's some that are, you know. <laughs> not so fun. Not so fun. But um, most of them, they're, they're just, you know, great people to be around. It's it's cool to see their motivation because especially at the elite level, going back to the previous conversation, they want to get better. Right. So being able to they're be. motivated. Being able to be around motivated people and, right. and wanting to get better, it, it's I cool. worked as a rehab aid in physical therapy for years. And 
you can't always say that about all the patients that come in physical therapy that the, it's the motivation mm-hmm. factor. Like a lot of them are there, but they don't care if they get mm-hmm. better or not. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be missing work and they might like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Yuri? I think Will just stole my answer too. I, yes. I love just being with these, you know, population of patients, you know, their athletes are very unique. They're very goal oriented and, you know, their eagerness to be back in the field really motivates us to be the best clinicians we can be. And I really like, you know, compared to the other healthcare professionals, you know, I, I love being an athletic tra- trainer and being that, you know, you're on the field. You're literally on the field with the athletes where the action's happening. And you can be the first one to recognize what might be wrong. You could be the first one to, you know, assess and direct the point of care for that athlete. And you in- in- interact with the athlete pretty much every day. And you're the first point point contact for that athlete to gain any knowledge or information about, you know, about health and science. So just being that gatekeeper of the information and being very influential in terms of, you know, the stuff that they want to know and, you know, pr- providing the best care for the long-term health and stuff like that, it's just very rewarding for me. And it's very different from just sitting in the clinic and, you know, see patients in a room, but being under the sun, you know, with the athlete and working day to day. Awesome. Um, so that being said, what's your fondest memory from being an athletic trainer? Like, uh, was there a specific athlete you worked with that overcame a particularly difficult injury or whatever it might be? If you have one, go ahead and start because i got to think for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be it's my fondest memory during my time as an athletic trainer is definitely um, at the road race when, you know, we treat hundreds well I, sh- I shouldn't say hundreds but if we count exer- heat exhaustion it would be hundreds um you know of all the exertional heat stroke patients on site and seeing them recover immediately because we provide the best care we can and you know they seeing them go home with their family and enjoy their rest of their afternoon you know that is a very rewarding feeling and knowing that i actually saved someone's life and you know they were able to see their family just as they expected because no one expects you know go to the hospital and stay in the ICU after they finish a marathon or right. you know road races you know they do that for fun and unfortunately they you know might have come to exertional heat stroke but because we were able to provide the right care now they're you know smiling and they ran the race and they're going back home with the family so seeing them recover and you know making sure that they could go home with their family and s- with smiling face that's just that the, one of my first that patient I talked to you about earlier, you know, seeing that recovery process in that short time amount, that was uh, that's probably one of the biggest um, or the most proudest moment as an athletic trainer. All right, and I'm gonna take I'm gonna steal Yuri's answer as well. I mean, I, I think you know some of the fondest memories is being able to work with some of these athletes at the road races. You know, we don't get to know them on a personal level like working with like a football team or a soccer team because you're with them for such a long period of time, um, but being able to you know, um, take care of them. And, you know, it, it is a great, it, it is a gratifying experience. I'll steal Yuri's words too. It is a really gratifying experience to, and on your way home that day, being like, you know what, I, I, I just saved three, four five people's lives. Like if, if we weren't there to save them, if they didn't have right. the correct protocols, they, they would have either had long-term issues or they would have died. So being able to like, you know what, I, I, this person's alive in their home because of the work that we were able to do. And I think the one unique experience going out, I'm going to have an example like Gary did, uh, a few years ago, we had, uh, treated a girl and she came in and it was memorable because she came in, um, to the medical tent and she had one of those like little, like, uh, like little kid, like pink little tutus on. Yeah. And you know, with her like running spandex and her like tank top or whatever. And, um, you know, her temperature was like 107. So we, we were cooling her down and, um, I was just talking to her and she was kind of loosey at first and you got her name, where she was from, how old she was. And she was going into her senior year in, in high school and she, um, she played volleyball. She never ran, but her friend wanted her to run. So she was running. Um, and part of the problem, part <laughs> of the problem. Yeah. Um, but it, it was interesting because, um, as I'm talking to her, she started to get a little upset because there were, you know, there's five or six people around treating to make sure the water was being circulated and she's cooling down appropriately. She started to get a little you know, upset. So, you know, myself and luckily there was a nurse, right. Or next to her head as well. I mean, you know, we're just trying to cool you down. You're a little hot. And she started crying a little bit and, um, you know, she's like, you're going to be okay. And then she started quoting Grey's Anatomy where she's like, 
Well, in Grey's Anatomy, they always tell the kids are going to be okay. They all end up dying. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're fine. You're, you're, <laughs> you're I'm not kidding. <laughs> you're you're going to be fine. We're just cooling down. And then, like, within, like, a matter of three seconds, she turned, like, stone cold faced and was, like, a news reporter. Like, um, news flash. I'm going to be, like, the fourth teenager to die in the Cape this year. And it's like, no, no, no. You're, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And we, we cooled her down. And um, back in the recovery area, um, her mom came in after she was um, um, done cooling. And she was recovering, just warming up. And, um, I had I had her iPod in my pocket because she came in with the iPod and I just I grabbed it put it in my pocket so I'm about to give it to her and I'm just talking to her and seeing if she remembered anything and she didn't remember anything that happened so I explained things to her she was like kind of embarrassed but um, just seeing the look on her and her mom's face afterwards was just a really great memorable experience because you know her mom was so thankful that we were there and you know she they were both so thankful and it was just kind of a cool experience to see that interaction between mother and daughter and then me being able to be back there and talk to him for a few minutes um in between patients was just amazing awesome that's yeah sounds like it's like uh shooting fish in a barrel for <laughs> saving people's lives <laughs> at, the, at this one what, what's the event called again this um race is Falmouth right Falmouth mm-hmm. Road Race in yeah. Massachusetts I've heard this talked about by every single mm-hmm. interview today yeah <laughs> that's all right so what's uh la- last couple of questions here so if you could tattoo one <laughs> word on your forehead that you had to look at in the mirror every single day what would it be we'll start off with with you will um so i'd probably say one one phrase i'm probably not a word just a little phrase um it'd probably be never give up um you know never give up um just with my own personal life experiences but there's been a lot of instances in my own life where you know we were and I was faced with you know trials tribulations and failures and um you know just overcoming those and and you know um um uh you know acknowledging that those exist and and finding a way to overcome them and succeed from them um you know it's kind of helped me come to where I am today so I would say probably that phrase just because you know it's it's Truthfully, you never give up. If you have your heart set on something, just keep You can find a way always, yep. Yeah. What about you, Yuri? I would. So I have a quote that I always live by um, okay. as a hard work beats talent. So when talent doesn't work hard. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all the things that I, you know, I mean, I chose to do this, but, you know, I found my passion and I worked my way up to, you know, from j- being in Japan and following my passion. And I was convinced that I have to, I just need to move to states and really study what's really going on in sports medicine. And, you know, I was able to overcome that first kind of challenge. And, you know, after finishing my master's, I found another passion to prevent sudden death in sport. And just the entire process, you know, although I've had great mentors and great colleagues to, you know, make this possible, um, it really comes down to, you know, as long as I'm working hard and, you know, stay focused on my passion, um, I can accomplish, you know, what I want to. So hard work beats talent. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys, for sharing your knowledge. And uh, Will talking about policies and how to make sports safer. And Yuri for making this entire day and four episodes happen. I uh, can't thank you enough. Thanks for the cookies. I love cookies. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) uh, Thank you very much, and I hope you guys enjoy your your soccer game. Will do. Thank you. Thanks, guys.